Father, thank you for today, for the blessings of the day, for the opportunity today to gather in your name, to offer you our praise and worship, to fellowship with each other, to partake of the sacrament together, to be in communion with you, and to look at your word together. I pray you'd send your spirit to open the scriptures to us. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're following the book of Genesis today. It just suddenly occurred to me as I was looking over this during the week. Um, the fourth commandment references the book of Genesis. The Sabbath, the seventh day, where we are commanded to uh, rest and not work, is linked to, anchored to, the creation story. And I'll have more to say about that um, a little bit later on. But I want to talk about Genesis. I'm going to spend sort of a um, a large part of my time this morning just doing background and trying to figure out what this book is and where it fits, um, talk a bit about who wrote it, give an overview of it, and then I do want to spend some time just looking at the first two chapters. And I'm going to do that without a... Um, any secondary interpretation or theme trying to tie it all together, I just want us to look at the scriptures together because God promises a blessing to us when we do that. So, first question. Next slide. What is it? It's the first of the five books of the law, the Torah, the Pentateuch. Those three words are synonyms. They mean the same thing. When um, Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin talk about the law, they mean the Pentateuch, they mean the Torah. So those five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, are Torah. They're the oldest of all the writings in the Old Testament. And in traditional synagogue worship, since the first century, down to today, a portion of the Torah is read out loud to the congregation each week. It's a, uh, a liturgical cycle. They read through the five books of the Torah every year over the course of each Sabbath. It's about five or six chapters a week. Um, and the first 12 Sabbaths of every year, the book of Genesis is read out loud in synagogue worship. I don't think I would know that if Avi hadn't told us. Um, Avi is our, our lovely friend who joins us on Saturday mornings for the men's Bible study. Um, he's a Cohen who has, whose family has, um, lived and farmed and had vineyards in Israel for over a century now. And he's a fascinating guy and we are blessed with his presence. So a lot of what I know about Genesis and Torah is because I've listened to Avi when he talks. Next slide. Now, who wrote the book of Genesis? For the last two centuries, that has been one of the most contested questions in biblical scholarship. Traditionally, everybody said, five books of the law written by Moses. Starting in the 1800s, there was a school of interpretation that said, well, did he really? 
Next slide. So in the 1800s, about 1880, uh, a German biblical scholar um, published a couple of books with a theory about the composition of um, the Torah in particular, although really it applied to all of the Old Testament, called the Documentary Hypothesis. Um, he noticed, although he's certainly not the first to notice, that in the Old Testament there are several different names for God. Two most prominent are Elohim and Yahweh, the name of God that's revealed to, to Moses. So he went through the books of the Old Testament, especially the five books of the Torah, and said, well, maybe that's use of the different names of God is the marker for a different author. Maybe there's one author who prefers Elohim and a different author who prefers Yahweh. Next slide. So we get what's called the um, JEDP theory. The, the, the four, eventually, Wellhausen says there, there are four different authors that he detects. Um, the Yahwist, which he believes to be the oldest, who preferred Yahweh as the divine name and views God in somewhat anthropomorphic terms. Next slide. E, or the Elohist, a slightly later priest, who preferred Elohim as the divine name and viewed God as more transcendent. Next slide. D, the Deuteronomist, the author of Deuteronomy. And, and here's the wonderful assertion by um, Professor Wellhausen, who fabricated that work at the time of Josiah and presented it as an authentic work of Moses. And, of course, it was accepted at once as authoritative by the conveniently, enormously naive Josiah. I'll say a few things about who I think is being enormously naive in a little bit. And then the fourth and final source, P, the priestly, whom Wellhausen says is a rather sour-minded religionist, a very late date, who combined J, E, and D, put his own touches in and presented all of this as the writings of Moses. Now, the motivation behind this is pretty obviously to um, contest and view skeptically the traditions about these five books and what these five books claim about themselves. Um, yeah, let me go ahead and do the next slide. One of the things cited in 1878, that's 140-something years ago, is that, of course, at the time of Moses, it's either the 15th, somewhere between the 15th and the 13th century B.C., 1,500 to 1,300 years before Jesus, of course we know there wasn't anything like a Hebrew language, and certainly there was no written version of that language. And so um, all of the books of the Torah could not possibly have been written by Moses because he had no ability to write anything in the Hebrew language. It must have been written by someone later after that language had developed. And then archaeology has a way of tripping up fallible human assertions. And since the 1870s, we've discovered, lo and behold, there is an ancient Hebrew language. There are texts in Hebrew. There are inscriptions in Hebrew. There are pottery sherds with Hebrew letters and markings and words on them that go all the way back to the 15th, 14th, and 13th centuries B.C. So here's a more recent um, 
uh, observation by a, a biblical scholar about the documentary hypothesis. He says it's worth noting that the early proponents of the JEDP theory grounded their ideas in the assumption that writing, in anything like ancient Hebrew, was unknown at the time of Moses. This assertion, long since vastly disproven, has been quietly and disingenuously removed from discussion, despite its critical contribution to the foundation of the JEDP theory and stands as a classic example of the just-so methods of the documentary hypothesizers. So I was taught this when I was in college, you know, when dinosaurs still roamed the earth and before we had invented fire. Um, I'm so old, I actually typed on an electric typewriter with a manual keyboard and, you know, made the sound at the end of every line. Um, I was taught all this in the 1970s, even though already by then they knew that the assertion that Moses couldn't have written in Hebrew was wrong. They had, in effect, I, I heard several people make this observation, they had built um, a multi-story structure on a foundation that no longer existed, but somehow miraculously the multi-story structure was still hovering in midair and being taught to students. This is actually, sadly, what is taught in most seminaries when they teach Old Testament. They teach this theory. Um, and, and German theology has far more influence than it should. The 19th century Germans were um, skeptics. Uh, they disbelieved in miracles. They disbelieved in the supernatural. They assumed that those things must have been inventions and were signs of primitive thinking. Well, if you start with that assumption, guess what you wind up proving? That miracles didn't happen and that the writers of these books were primitive thinkers. But it's completely circular. Um, in fact, there's a good German word for what they've really done. Um, that I'm very fond of and makes my wife giggle. Um, the German word for history is Geschichte. That's straightforward history. So then you have uh, different kinds of Geschichte. You have um, Kriegsgeschichte, which is war history, military history. You have Kirchengeschichte, which is church history. Um, the 19th century theologians are fond of making a distinction between Realgeschichte, which is just what it sounds like, and um, Heilsgeschichte. Heilsgeschichte is salvation history. So the technical German term for this theory now is Bullgeschichte. <laughs> and yes, I know I'm being recorded and broadcast, and it's fine. Um, I will stand by that. Okay, next slide. So who wrote... The Torah, Moses, absolutely, certainly, certainly for Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There are internal references, and Kevin actually read from Leviticus this morning the internal references there in the book of Leviticus. God told Moses to write down. That occurs in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. God told Moses to write down. And so we have the written record of what God told Moses to write down. It is confirmed in the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, famous passage. This passage is so famous, and, and I have memorized the Ten Commandments, 
and could not recall and had never made this connection until this week. So I thank Larry for asking me to preach and for all of you for putting up with me because whenever I'm asked to preach, I learn stuff. It's great. So if you look in Exodus 20 at the Ten Commandments, it begins with the phrase, and God spoke all these words. God spoke all these words. God spoke the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are not written by Moses. They're transcribed by Moses. But God spoke them. And the Fourth Commandment? For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. It's not just the book of Genesis that talks about Creation in six days. It's the fourth commandment. It's the basis for the seven-day cycle on the Sabbath day and the day of rest. And it is God who told Moses. God says, look, I made everything in six days, and on the seventh day, I rested. You should rest too. But that's not Moses' composition. Moses didn't invent that. Moses is quoting what God said. As if that were not enough for us to give some weight and have some confidence in the Old Testament, there are New Testament references. The scribes and the Pharisees in the four Gospels often quote Scripture. They often quote Torah. And they identify that they're quoting Torah. They actually don't give which book they're quoting from. They just say, as Moses said, as Moses said, this is the, 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 the Jewish community, the most learned scholars, the rabbis, the, they all look at the Pentateuch, all five books, and say, Moses said this. Jesus quotes the Old Testament. Jesus quotes Genesis and says, have you not read Moses says, this. Next slide. Every book of the New Testament quotes from the book of Genesis. Or at least makes a reference to it as authoritative. Every single one of the New Testament writers in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, in every letter of Paul, there is a quotation or a reference to the book of Genesis. It's not an obscure, by-the-side, irrelevant, unimportant book. It's central. It's core. Next slide. But Genesis is different from the other four books. With the other four books, from the book of Exodus on, we're recording things that Moses was a participant in. Moses is an eyewitness. Moses is writing down, here's what happened. I was there. In the book of Genesis He's recounting events which happened centuries before he lived. Which prompts the natural question, how did Moses know? How did Moses write the account of creation and the account of the creation of Adam and Eve and the account of the fall and the flood and the Tower of Babel? All those things had happened centuries before he lived. Next slide. So one possible answer might be perhaps all of that was supernaturally revealed to Moses. You know, maybe the angel Gabriel met him in a cave and took, no, sorry, that's a different guy. 
Um, yeah, we're not going to go there. It's possible, but I don't think that's what happened. Next slide. It's also possible that Moses received, possibly from Jethro, older scrolls which he then compiled and edited into the book of Genesis. And if you go to the next slide, here's the evidence for that. There are signatures in the book of Genesis. There are all these references. These are the generations of is a repeated phrase. Occurs a number of times. I think it's nine. Ten. Ten times in the book of Genesis. These are the generations of. Now, the Hebrew word for generations is the same thing as book or record or account. And these signatures actually occur at the end of the sections that have just been presented. So at the end of the creation story in Genesis chapter 2, you have the little signature, these are the generations of the heavens of the earth when they were created. So this is the record of, the book of, the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. And then in Genesis 5, you get this really fascinating reference. This is the book of the generations of Adam. With a pretty high degree of certainty, what that means is the account from Genesis 2 to Genesis 5 was written by Adam. And Moses is putting all of these together because Genesis, the traditional meaning of that word, this is the book of beginnings. Moses has collected the accounts of the beginnings and put them together. Chapter 6 of Genesis, these are the generations of Noah. So who wrote chapters 5 and into chapter 6? Noah. Noah's, we, have, we know about what happened in the flood because Noah wrote an account of the flood. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. Does it say which one? Possibly all three together? There is a chapter later. These are the generations of Shem, who is one of those sons. He may have actually compiled the accounts of his brothers and then added his own. These are the generations of Terah. That's Abraham's father. Abraham kept that account and brought it with him. These are the generations of Ishmael. Ishmael's Abraham's son. And Ishmael apparently leaves an account of the family events. And then 2519, these are the generation of Isaac, Abraham's son. There's a pretty strong implication. Most of the rabbis in their commentaries on this one say that that's an account of Isaac, which incorporates the account of Abraham. There's a lot of detail in the story of Abraham that could only come from Abraham himself. And so that Isaac took what his father had written, added to it, and then puts this signature on the end. These are the generations of Esau. Not a lot of information, but there's part of Genesis that appears to be a direct eyewitness account of Esau. And these are the generations of Jacob the father of 12 sons and one daughter. He has left his own record.
So the idea that Genesis, at least, is a compilation of earlier sources, this is is the, the documentary hypothesis that I will subscribe to, that Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, Numbers and Deuteronomy, are Moses' account with perhaps a scribe compiling and and adding a verse or two in summary. But the Genesis is um, edited by Moses. Next slide. Which is not to in any way demean, diminish, call into question the authority, the inspiration of the book of Genesis. Moses, led, inspired, guided by the Holy Spirit, compiles these earlier scrolls about creation, the flood, and the patriarchs. Next slide. God affirms the details of Moses' book of beginnings when he spoke to Moses about the Sabbath day and the fourth commandment. This is why you rest on the seventh day, because I created the world in six days. There's no reason why that summary of the book of Genesis should be in the Ten Commandments, except that I think it is God saying, what Moses has given you in the book of beginnings, that is how I did it. You know, this reaffirmation in the Ten Commandments of God saying, this is how I did it. Moses has the details for you. Go back and read that other book. And I, it, it, it just never hit my brain to connect the Ten Commandments to the book of Genesis, but it's clearly there. And there's no obvious reason why it should be, except that God wanted us to understand and to affirm the authority. Next slide. The authority and inspiration of Moses' book of beginnings, recognized by ancient Israel, by the kings, by Josiah, by Ezra, and by the scribes and Pharisees down to the days of Jesus. So it's not that anybody picks this book and says, we're going to give this book some authority because this council, this group, maybe even it's just one author. I like this book. I think this book should be, you know, I nominate this book to be included in Scripture. Let's vote. That's not the way the canon develops. That's not the way the inspired books, the inspired revelation of God came to be recorded. Books are not given authority because they have been canonized by men. They are canonized by men because they recognize that the books have authority. So it's not as though we had all of these different scrolls and we could pick the ones we liked and the ones we didn't like or some council back there you know, held an election and said, well, yeah, put that one in. No, leave that one out. Yeah, put that one in. No. The church... All of these important figures in the history of Israel all recognized that account of the beginnings by, by Moses, that part of the Torah, we hear God's voice. We recognize God's voice. We understand that that is the authoritative revelation. That Moses, yes, Moses assembled those accounts from pre-existing scrolls, but what Moses produced was inspired by God, Moses was led by the Holy Spirit. Those accounts are included because they are true. Next slide. The New Testament writers affirm the authority and inspiration of the Pentateuch. I've already given you the references, including Genesis. Um, 
perhaps especially including Genesis. Okay. I get a little passionate about these things. Um, but it's important. It's not immaterial. Next slide. So what is the book of Genesis about? It's 50 chapters. It's 50 chapters, and most of us know a lot of the stories. Most of us learned them in Sunday school and remember those lessons. Um, but if you have never actually studied the book systematically as um, uh, an, an integrated uh, anthology of beginnings, then I would invite you to, because it falls out really neatly. It's not just 50 chapters. It really divides up into four almost exactly equal parts. So part one through part four, about about 12 chapters in each of the four parts. Chapters 1 through 11 are the creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. That's the first quarter of the book of Genesis. And then chapters 12 through 24, 13 chapters, almost exactly a quarter of the book, tells the story of Abraham. A lot of details, a lot of different things happen. Abraham moves from one place to another. Abraham gets married. Abraham meets God and God makes promises. And then Abraham and Sarah don't have any children. And the angel insists you're going to have a child, and Sarah laughs, which I always think is a great, great response. Yeah, right. Hashtag sarcasm. Um, yeah. So they named the child who is conceived after Sarah laughed. They name him Laughter. It's what Isaac means, right? Got an Isaac back there. Isn't that what Isaac means? Good. Just, I was just checking. Not to put you on the spot. It's my son-in-law. Um, so chapters 25 through 36 are Isaac and Jacob together, the two of them. Um, Isaac's story is interesting. Um, Jacob's story is interesting. By the way, this kind of leaves out the matriarchs who are every bit as important and as interesting. Um, Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah, and Rachel. Um, don't have time to go through all of that. It's not my, my point for this morning. That's the third quarter of the book of Genesis. And the fourth quarter of the book of Genesis, I just realized you could score this like a football game. The fourth quarter of the book of Genesis is Joseph and his brothers. Now, Jacob has 12 sons and a daughter, but the focus in those that last quarter is clearly Joseph. It's the next to the youngest, and he's the star of the story. And Joseph has this roller coaster life that's very dramatic, very important. He winds up being the um, prime minister of Egypt, uh, the most powerful man in Egypt other than Pharaoh. And his brothers, who had sold him into slavery when they come to Egypt to visit because there's a famine in their land, don't recognize him. He recognizes them. They do not recognize him. And then eventually, of course, he invites and gives refuge to his father and all of his brothers, and they move to Egypt. And that's really the backdrop that gets you right up to the point at which the Pharaoh of the oppression is introduced in the first chapter of Exodus, and we're off into the story of Moses. Go to the next slide. Um, anybody wants this, I'll make you copies. This is this is actually from um, Precept Ministries. 
um, one of the precept groups, oh, it got cut off here, has a really good set of resources. I think it's in Texas, San Antonio, Austin, Austin, Austin. So precept Austin has these great overview charts for each of the books of the Bible. And this just shows you, because, I mean, it's nice in that it's giving you first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter. Here's the whole football game. Is there a football game today? Yeah, okay. It's not the reason I have this on my mind. but So you see creation, fall, flood, birth of the nations. That's the Tower of Babel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob kind of together make up a quarter of the book. And Joseph makes up a quarter of the book. Okay. Next slide. Now, now I can start my sermon. Okay. Um, let me read this. I've tried to divide up this story of um, creation, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, into uh, what amounts to really sort of paragraphs. And I was um, rather pleasantly surprised that they fall out very neatly into short groups of three to five sentences, as if they were paragraphs and structured and um, there's a plan. It's not random. It's not primitive. It's um, sophisticated, highly structured. And, of course, we'll go through and and the first of... um, Chapter 1 is divided very neatly into the six days of creation. So let me read these one at a time, and I'll make some observations as we go along. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning. The first day. So a bunch of different things that could be said there. But um, one of the more obvious ones is God's method of creation here is unique in all of the ancient creation stories. All the ancient cultures have creation stories. Everybody wants to answer the question, um, how did we get here? How did the world begin? Every, that's, that's just a, a recurrent universal question that human beings pose. And every culture has their own creation myth. Conveniently, Darwin gave us one because everybody wants to have one. So, yeah, Darwin's account is a creation myth, and that's why when you attack it, people feel like their religion is being attacked because it's a religious belief. God's is different. Every other creation account, ancient really or modern, um, has God or the gods, A, manipulating something and something existing before. And God doesn't physically manipulate anything here. God doesn't, he doesn't kill a giant and out of his body fashion the earth. He doesn't stack up things on other things. It's turtles all the way down. Um, God's method of creation is to speak. 
He simply says, let there be light. And there was light. John the Evangelist, many centuries later, is going to echo this. In fact, John's very careful to connect his first chapter of his gospel is connected to the book of Genesis in form, in vocabulary, in references. In the beginning, you don't know whether I'm saying Genesis or John yet. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In English, you almost have to add the phrase, and God was the Word, because in the Greek, it's reflexive. English depends upon word order. Greek doesn't. In Greek, when you say, and the Word was God, you are also simultaneously saying God was the Word. They're interchangeable. In Genesis, God uses only the Word to create. He says, let there be light, and there was light. And then he saw what he had created and pronounces it good. The other interesting thing here is there is an implication of God's um, complexity, plurality. The first verse refers to God. That's Elohim. And the second verse talks about the spirit of God. Now, you can't say that Genesis is Trinitarian, but you certainly have to acknowledge that they think of God as having um, more than just a singularity. There's God and there's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God acts, God acts through. The Spirit of God is God and God is the Spirit. It, it speaks to a complexity of the nature of God that is then more fully revealed in the Incarnation. Next slide. Second day. God said, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. This one's a little puzzling, I admit. I'm not sure I completely understand separating waters and making an expanse. I, my first inclination would be to say, oh, well, that's when God creates the earth and separates it from waters around it or below it and waters above. Except in verse 8 it says, God called the expanse heaven. Which I don't quite know what to do with, except that we can certainly say a couple of things about this, even, with, even if we don't understand precisely what's going on here. Um, again, God's method is to speak, and it happens. God pronounces that what he has created is good, and God is organizing chaos into structure. He's creating separate, distinct parts, and the organization of, of the parts of creation are, are good. So God brings order out of chaos and disorder, where the natural um, experience of our lives is that over time, things go from order to disorder. God is imposing order 
upon disorder. Next slide. Third day, longer paragraph. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. So again, same method. God doesn't grab things and manipulate them and put pieces together and, you know, he doesn't, doesn't have a big pot to which he's adding ingredients. He speaks. And it happens. So he creates dry land, the earth. He creates all of the plants. And the method by which plants will then propagate and replicate and renew over time from the beginning He's creating something that will be sustaining and that will pass life forward with each generation in its seed. And he's, again, bringing order out of chaos. He is creating different kinds. And each one's going to preserve its kind. Next slide. Fourth day. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, fourth day. But interesting, I'm not sure if I were trying to do this as a, a speculative essay, I would have said, well, yes, God made the earth and the plants, and then he put light in the sky. Then he put the sun and the moon up. It's like, he did plants before he did the sun and the moon? Really? That's what, that's what Genesis says. Same method. Same results, same pronouncement. Next slide. Fifth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the sea, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, fifth day. There's something new and different in this fifth day. There is uh, an action of God that is added. He speaks, and it happens. He pronounces it good. He's imposing order over chaos. But there's a phrase that first occurs in this day. 
He blessed them. There's something about living creatures that they carry the blessing of God. Living creatures, animals, birds, and the great sea creatures. It's actually a little bit of debate in verse 21 over what the great sea creatures might mean. It's a Hebrew word that's elsewhere um, translated dragons. Leviathan. It's it's a little bit obscure, and the and the rabbis still debate. What, what, what does that reference have to do? Um, but yeah, living beings are different. Life is different from inanimate objects in creation. God blessed them. God told them to be fruitful and multiply. Okay. Sixth day. Last day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Repetition from the previous days, but also unique characteristics of this day. There is a distinction between Human beings, mankind, I'm going to insist that this is the ESV, but I'm going to insist that man here is the inclusive man, meaning man and woman, as is explicitly spelled out in verse 27. He creates mankind, and then he does something different. He gives man dominion. Actually, it is interesting that in 26, for man, in the second sentence, the Hebrew uses the plural. doesn't say let him, let them. All of them collectively together, male and female, have dominion. Dominion means to rule over, to be master of, to be steward of, to be caretaker and keeper of. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and a very creeping thing that creeps on the earth. But created in his own image, male and female together created in the image of God. And it's not immediately obvious what the word image there means. Um, likeness, form, shadow. Um, someone pointed out to me, you know, I don't know, you can't quite see this, but there's a shadow of my hand on the piece of paper here. Well, the shadow is in the image of my hand. Shadow shares the same light. It's not my hand. It doesn't have all the characteristics of my hand, but it is the image of my hand. So a shadow is in kind of an image. It doesn't mean that we share all of the attributes and properties of the divine creator, but we do share some 
and probably um, it's not going too far to say that what makes us unique from among all his creations, all the living things, um, is that we bear his image. Um, and we are also given by him dominion. Okay. We'll go on. Oh, yeah, sorry. Sixth day has two parts. Still on the sixth day. 28. Oh, good. God blessed them. Here it is again. God blesses them. Says to them, plural. And this is not, not just to the male, but to the male and the female in God's name. It says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And, yeah, that's that's a distinctive at the end there, at the end of creation. It was very good. The sum and total of what God had created was very good. So God has blessed every living creature. He has blessed man, male and female, created in his image. He has given us dominion. He has given us a command to be fruitful and multiply until you start to warm the planet. No, it doesn't say that. And fill the earth and subdue it. And we have been given every plant, well, except the green ones. I don't like the green ones. Nobody laughed. Hmm, okay. Um, the implication here is that Neither we nor, neither mankind nor the animals ate meat before the fall. Everybody was a vegetarian before the fall. Now, clearly after the fall, everybody's not. But before the fall, apparently, everybody was. Um, and everybody ate the plants, every green plant for food. Yeah, it does say that. I know. I'm sorry. Everybody has the verses they struggle with. Okay. Seventh day. The seventh day actually is in chapter two. Um, but it clearly forms a unit with all of chapter one. So the first four verses of chapter two are clearly um, the, the completion of the story. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And then here's the signature of the book. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And that verse 4 is the tag to the end of a source, the end of a document. This is one of the accounts that Moses apparently had been given, that he begins his book of beginnings with, And now he's going to move to a second source, a second account. It's not clear who wrote this account. Um, Possibly Adam, but the second account has the signature of the book of Adam. 
this one just says basically not who the author is, but what the subject of that book was. So let's turn. Yeah, I still got a few minutes. Let's turn to um, the next part of chapter two. The man, the garden, and the trees. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. So apparently, when God created all of the plants, a lot of that was simply the creation of seeds in the ground that hadn't yet sprouted. After all of that, a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees. Next slide. Four rivers. I'm not going to read this one because I don't understand it. I think the the geography had to have been different because it says four rivers flowed out of the garden, and we don't have a space on the earth we can point to now where this is the current situation. So it must, there must have been some alteration in the geography of the earth since then. Two of these rivers do arise very close to each other, but the other two that are named are now um, vastly separated. But the Genesis account says the garden was planted at a spot where four rivers flowed out. Moving on. And God issues a command to the man. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden, of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's the first command that God gives to man. Well, unless you can't, it's the first negative command. Be fruitful and multiply might actually be the first. This might be the second. Moving on. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. A couple of just lovely things um, in here. Um, God had previously named things, and now he delegates that authority and responsibility and power to the man in the garden. He says, you name them. I made them. You name them. He brings them, each of the animals, and says, what do you want to call this? I got a platypus. What do you want to call it? This, this is a weird one. What is it? 
Um, there's a wonderful song, one of my favorites from, from the 70s, Bob Dylan, that great theologian, um, <laughs> wrote a wonderful song called Man Gave Names to All the Animals. And in fact, he's since then, um, in addition to doing the song, he actually uh, created a children's book to go with the song that's, that's a lot of fun. I, I commend it to you. But man is here participating with God in the act of creation. J.R.R. Tolkien picked up on this and calls uh, one of the distinctives of um, mankind is that we are sub-creators. One of the parts of being in the image of God, God creates part of his nature. And so we create because we are in his image. And the creation here is Adam named everything. But notice Eve is not on the scene yet. And I, again, I don't know how I missed this, but I just noticed this this week. The command not to eat of the tree is given to Adam before Eve was created. Not just given to Adam so he could tell her later on in the day when he saw her, but the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is given to Adam before Eve exists. (laughs) Well, she knows about it, though. She's been told. She quotes back to the, to the serpent. She clearly knows. Adam's clearly told her. Clearly Adam's responsibility was to tell her, and she's heard it. She knows it. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep, sorry, next slide, to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Um, Yeah, the, the Hebrew for man and woman, man is ish, and woman is isha. So very interesting close parallel in English in that um, man and woman are related words and kind of a play upon each other. Um, One thing that I should have pointed out earlier, in chapter 2, when we shift away from the first account to the second account, um, Go all the way back, in fact, to the seventh day, if you would. William, I apologize for making you do that, but yeah, go back to the seventh day. There we oh, oh, there it was, seventh day. So verse two, God finished his work. Verse three, God blessed, God rested. Elohim, Elohim, Elohim. Verse four, in the day that the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, All through chapter 1, it's Elohim, 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 until this first 4 of chapter 2, where it switches to Jehovah Elohim. Now, this is what made the Germans go crazy. I get a little bit. They they don't just divide up the five books and say they have four different authors. They say, oh, different parts of Genesis have different authors. Well, yeah, clearly different parts of Genesis have different authors, but not the way you think. The rest of chapter 2 is the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God, all the way down to um, the creation of Eve. Go back to that. 
the very end. God creates Eve. The Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And the rib that Jehovah Elohim had taken from the man, he made into a woman. That's not because you have different writers centuries apart and, you know, um, an, an odd sort of skeptical uh, accumulation. It's because Moses is pulling his sources, the older scrolls he has, and putting them together. Well, I didn't even get us to the fall. But I hope that this helps you and maybe piques your interest a little bit and um, that you are now a little bit intrigued and would like to read the rest of the story for yourself. I commend that to you. The book of Genesis has all sorts of rich rewards. Like every book of Scripture, there is a rich reward for reading and studying the Scripture. I just wanted to emphasize in this that this is not some... um, primitive ancient myth that we can just dismiss and throw away, this actually has God's, um, for lack of a better word, God's imprimatur, God's stamp, God's confirmation in the fourth commandment. This is how I did it. And what God did and how he did it and the, the nature of creation and what it reveals to us about the nature of God or at the foundation of God's revelation to us of his whole plan for humanity from creation on. He creates by speaking. His creation is good. Man is unique. Men and women are created in the image of God. And the very first thing, task that Adam is given to perform is God says, come help me with creation. Come tend the garden. I've created all of these plants. They're going to spring up, but they're going to need some help. And come name the animals for me. I want to see what you call these things that I created. I want you to admire and appreciate. I want to see the look on your face when you see the first giraffe. Like, what in the world? Okay, we'll call that a giraffe. Or whatever the Hebrew word is, I don't know. And so I commend all of this to you. It's important. Um, I think the Torah is read every year for very good reasons. I think the book of Genesis should be read to our children for very good reasons. This is a story that is rich, that informs us, that forms the foundation of everything else that God in the rest of the scriptures wants to reveal to us. It should not be skipped over or treated lightly or dismissed. So may God bless to us his word and the message and the meaning and help us to understand him so that we might serve him better and proclaim the good news of his son, which began in the garden. Let me close. Pray for us all. Father, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you that you revealed yourself to us. Thank you that you are the creator, the one who brings order out of disorder. Thank you that you made us in your image and that you created us with a a spirit of creativity and an urge to serve and to have dominion and to give names and to participate with you in the ordering of creation. Thank you that from the beginning you knew that what you had created was good and that you loved your creation and that 
in the fullness of time, you sent your son into the world, into your creation, to save us and to redeem and to restore. We give you thanks. We praise you. Father, I ask you to bless all of those here and those who are, are watching now or who will watch later, that you would bless and guide and lead. Use all of us to build your kingdom, to proclaim the good news of your son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.